Although Chris Van Allsburg's books are very well known in the UK and he's very well loved here, their creator is something of a mystery, a little bit like the owner of the pair of gloved hands in the witty and theatrical A to Z, although I should probably say A to Z, in the Z was zapped. Today we have a rare opportunity to draw open the curtains and discover a little bit more about Chris Van Allsburg, sculptor, illustrator, storyteller and filmmaker. Chris's books are published here in the UK by Anderson Press, but that's relatively recent and the story really goes back to the late 1970s with the publication of Chris's debut book, The Gardens of Abdul Ghazazi. That's the story of a young boy who follows a runaway dog into the garden of an imposing magician. An encounter with Garzese leaves the boy and perhaps the reader wondering if magic has been at work or whether they were simply some form of illusion. The book, I think to Chris's surprise from what I've read, received immediate critical recognition and a Caldicott honour. Further books, Jumanji and the Polar Express, resulted in two Caldicott medals and of course two films were made from those books. The Polar Express is now as much a part of our tradition as the snowman, Christmas trees and Christmas stockings. Prevalent themes of mystery, dreams and the power and lucidity of the imagination can be seen running through Chris's books. And as well as mystery stories like The Wreck of the Zephyr, The Stranger, The Wretched Stone, his portfolio includes a playful alphabet, a collection of mysterious images in the ever popular The Mysteries of Harris Burdick and a foray into nonfiction with Queen of the Fools. With such a range of books, we are inevitably on course for an evening of very interesting discussion. Welcome to In the Reading Corner, Chris. Well, it's great to be here. In that short introduction, it touches only very briefly um, on your portfolio. What are the bits that I've missed out that you would really like people to know about you as an illustrator of children's books? Uh, well, I, it may have been short, but I think it was pretty comprehensive. Um, I uh, started out as an artist, uh, as a sculptor, and, and made sculpture for some years. And it was not till I was about uh, 28, 29 years old that uh, on a whim, I decided I would uh, give a shot at, at illustrating a book. It wasn't that my sculpture career was at a standstill. I'd actually had a couple of shows at that point and had a lot of encouragement, but uh, there were a couple of reasons why I needed a little break from my sculpture studio. So I, I drew some pictures and, and uh, those were not pictures that became the first book, but they were pictures that um, my wife actually took to a publisher you know, to demonstrate my, my skill as a draftsman. Well, that led to uh, a relationship with the publisher and, and led to the publication of the first book. Mm -hmm. um, looking at that book, um, it's one that isn't published here, although, of course, we can get the book from uh, the States. But looking at uh, the Garden of Abdul Ghazazi, it, it, it seems to me to be quite sculptural in its illustration. The pictures remind me of three-dimensional mathematical drawings or the on grisaille techniques that are employed by Renaissance artists to give the effect of sculpture. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how 
being a sculptor has influenced the way that you've approached your drawing, perhaps in your first book, and if it's continued to inform it going forward? Well, <clears throat> when I went to college to study art, I did not have the same kind of background uh, that many of the students that I encountered there had had. They'd studied art uh, in high school and, and had become quite proficient. I wasn't interested in art when I was in high school and really chose to become an artist or an art major in college on kind of an impulse, a whim as it were. And so when I got into the art school, I saw around me these fellow students who could draw quite well. And, and I made, I came to the conclusion that their, their drawing skills were a, uh, a matter of their gift, that they had been gifted this and I hadn't, uh, and I would not be able to draw like they did. I did have a, a set of skills though that I brought to college from my childhood. And those were skills that I had developed building model airplanes and model boats. I was really quite good at it. Um, fu unusually fussy for a child and uh, a pretty good craftsman. And so when I got to college and I saw my fellow students drawing so well and doing you know, impressive two-dimensional art, I took the skills that I knew I had, that I was confident in, which is to make things with my hands. And I started making sculpture. I went into the sculpture department. And uh, so I sculpted. And my only experience as a draftsman, as, as, as a person who drew in two dimensions, during that period of time I was studying sculpture, I would imagine the sculpture I was going to make and then I would draw a picture of it before I made it. And this was to explore the ideas I had. Uh, sometimes it was to um, determine the amount of clay or bronze that, that I needed to use, but I, I was drawing from my imagination. I could, I could see a three-dimensional object in my, in my head and then I could draw it on a piece of paper. So that was basically my drawing experience. So when I became an illustrator, I had not had the traditional um, education that an illustrator might have. Uh, and so when I did that first book, just did what I knew how to do, pick up a pencil and draw things. And so I would imagine a topiary garden, I would imagine a front porch and I would draw these things. And your observation that they look, they have a kind of a mathematical quality to them is astute because I'm basically just using the laws of perspective uh, and sort of laying these things out like, uh, you know, like plans and, and, and not like a traditional draftsman might where they are perhaps looking at a model, looking at subject matter. I was plotting all this out and drawing it like that. So that might account for the, the kind of clunky geometry that the, that the, the drawings seem to have because uh, in, in a way I was drawing things I was gonna make out of clay. So that was, that was how I did the first book. But after having done that first book, that was a learning curve for me, a learning experience. And I actually went back in the sculpture studio after I did the first book without an idea of, uh, of doing a second. I mean, for me, that was a discreet experience. I'd enjoyed it, kind of challenging. I felt rewarded by the reaction it had, not only rewarded, but surprised. Because uh, it was a black and white book. And uh, there weren't many children's books then, and there aren't really that many now that are illustrated in black and white. In spite of that, it found an audience. And, uh, and so after about maybe a little less than a year of being back in the sculpture studio, uh, I, I thought if I could do it again, 
I could do a better job because of what I'd learned the first one. So I had learned more about materials. Uh, it, it, shouldn't, it shouldn't qualify as any kind of an insight. It should be just sort of you know, obvious that, that uh, if, as I was, interested in creating representational pictures, pictures that persuaded the viewer that the reality I was describing actually existed, I would be benefited by not simply relying on my imagination, but also some resource material. So I would get, so I, I, in the second book, I actually went out and got models and I would light the models carefully and I would do sketches. And uh, so I had, I had more information and the result of that was Jumanji. And if you compare those two books, you'll see this kind of leap forward to a, a more convincing reality. That doesn't mean necessarily that, that, that they're better illustrations because there's a lot of illustration which is great, not because it's convincing reality, but because it, it effectively supports the text. You know, that, that, that uh, there are certain texts that, that are better illustrated with kind of fanciful cartoon-like images because that's, that's what the text is asking for. And the images can actually make the text better and they support each other. Mm -hmm. But in my case, when I was doing Jumanji, a kind of a fantasy story, I liked the idea of doing very kind of representational pictures so that the fantasy was taken more seriously, that there seemed to be a little more gravity to it, a little more mm -hmm. gravitas to this, this kind of silly fantasy of a, of a game board coming to life. Mm -hmm. So um, my own story notions, served by this ambition in myself to, to create more representational pictures worked out. And so that second book uh, also well received. And, and so at that point I was spending maybe uh, half my time sculpting, half my time making picture books. Uh, but over the years, uh, the picture books overwhelmed the, the sculpture. I clung to this idea or this, this description of myself as an artist for a long time partly because a little stigma attached to being an illustrator that grows out of the reality that often illustrators are working from someone else's text. And in that sense, the creative energy or contribution of the illustrator is considered somewhat less than an artist who's simply working based, inspired by their own ideas. So I, I was reluctant to describe myself as an illustrator. And I never really thought of myself as a writer. I, 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 would, I could go so far as to call myself a storyteller, but I didn't think of the little books that I did as having sufficient literary ambition. So I, I didn't think of myself as a writer. And then there was a point that I made peace with all of this, that I was making art, you know, that this was, you know, this may be a popular art form. It has to uh, yield to the realities of popular art forms, which means that it, it can't be so personal and so kind of um, uh, self-absorbed in a way, you have to sort of accept the fact that, that you're speaking in a language that needs to communicate. Uh, and so I made, peace, I made peace with it. I, and one of the things that sort of helped me make peace with it is, of course, I was an illustrator of my own ideas. And uh, that made me more uh, willing to identify myself as an artist. Mm -hmm. Now, having said all that, I wanna say I've, I've, I've out, outgrown all those prejudices. There are great illustrators. <laughs> I think anybody who's read your entire collection, um, it will be immediately apparent to them that you use a range of materials. I don't know if 
uh, the word style is quite right, uh, but certainly a range of materials that work for the subject of the story, uh, from pencil and charcoal to pastels to what looks to an untrained eye like mine, like pen and ink in Two Bad Ants. Uh, my question really is whether there was an element of trial and error in settling on the media that you used and whether the choice was more difficult for some books than others. And following from that, whether discovering what materials can do um, is part of the enjoyment of doing it for you. <laughs> yeah, well, in each book, I've used slightly different materials. I think in the same way I, I imagined a piece of sculpture and then drew a picture of it. When I'm thinking about a story, I sort of see it in a certain ways in a particular style, you know, and so that it sort of guides me in. I mean, the first color book I did was called The Wreck of the Zephyr, and it's a story about a young boy who learns how to sail a boat above the water. And when I imagined the story, I didn't imagine it in black and white. You know, I just happened to see all these things happening in color. So I, I decided, well, I, I should accept, uh, accept the challenge. And, and I went out and got some materials. I did some little experimentation, but, you know, boldly jumped in without a great deal of experience. Uh, uh, that, that's actually been the case with a lot of the books I've done. I've gone out and bought some new materials. I'll do a little experimentation. Then I'll just get into it because I'm too impatient. I want to start doing the, the finished illustrations. And, and I always worry when that happens because, you know, in a book, there's going to be maybe 14, 15 illustrations. And I worry that the last illustration I do will be different from the first, just because in the process of doing the book, I've gained some expertise. The idea of of, of doing book after book in the same material didn't interest me. So it's, there is something that just keeps you stimulated and engaged when you don't quite understand the materials you're, you're working with. Now that, that uh, the implication of that is obvious, which is that if I just stayed with one set of materials, I, I could be an absolute master of it by now. <laughs> It'd be really fabulous. But because I'm a dilettante, my knowledge of materials and technique is broad, but probably not as deep as it might be. So you obviously like the playfulness, which of course is reflected in the themes of many of your books as well, the world of play and the world of imagination. I've read quite a, a, a few interviews where people often want to pin down whether uh, some of these stories are about magic or illusion. And as I was reading that, I was thinking maybe that's missing the point that there's something that connects magic and illusion and that that is wonder. And you can wonder at magic and you can equally wonder at illusion. I wonder what you thought about that idea. <laughs> well, when you see an effective illusion, and I, I can't say for sure that I've actually been exposed to genuine magic. I mean, that was the premise of the first story I wrote w without intending it to be, which is that this boy has had an experience. And at the end of the book, he can't determine whether or not he's interacted with a genuine wizard who can really perform magic or whether or not he's just been fooled by clever stagecraft. I would say that both of those things probably stimulate the same thing, which is wonder. Uh, I'm guessing the people who <laughs> exposed to true magic or, or what feels like that to them uh, the wonder is probably followed by mystification and, and puzzlement and then maybe at some point even anxiety <laughs> yeah. because they can't, they, can't account, they can't account for it. 
children, I'm guessing, if they were exposed to illusion, which I believe they would probably interpret as genuine magic, because they don't know these are tricks, I think they're more comfortable looking at it and saying, yeah, it was magic. Mm. And it seems to me that the, our world is kind of built on things that are magic until we find out how they work. Most of science, it seems to me, is magical. <laughs> I guess, though the result of science is ordinarily to eliminate the magic in a phenomenon, because the, the, the goal of science is to explain it. You know, a, ma a magician coming out and, and showing exactly how they saw through the lady. So science, I believe, is it's not its mission to dispel magic. Its, its mission is just to describe the world, to mm -hmm. solve puzzles. But it won't ever solve all of them, so there'll always be some magic left. It will indeed. Um, I was going to ask you about the, the kind of time in which the stories are set. Many of them seem to be belong to a previous era, perhaps reaching back to your own childhood or even earlier. Not many of them really seem to be in the here and now. It's a kind of pre-technological space, your story. <laughs> Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I, like most um, children's book writers, am, am not really uh, observing children and, and determining what a, a good story might be for a child and, and maintaining a relationship with children in order to keep our finger on the pulse of childhood. We're really just all thinking about our own childhood. So since these, these stories are largely uh, stories that uh, are derived from my memories of my own childhood, I think that would incline me to, to give them settings that are a little bit like my own childhood, which would be the 50s. Um, but there was another more specifically kind of aesthetic consideration that I was aware of almost from the beginning, which is this desire to create books that if you ripped out the copyright page, anyone who looked at the book would be hard put to determine when it was published. You know, I just like the idea of the thing being a, a kind of a timeless artifact. And that was an, a, an aesthetic consideration. And, um, you know, I've sort of clung to it. Uh, when I have to include something in a book, which is normally an obvious tip off in terms of time, it, it, it would identify it because of its style. Mm -hmm. I, I, I pretty conscientiously avoid that I did a book recently the Misfortune is a Sweetie Pie, which is about a really bad string of luck for a small, a small pet. And because of the adventures he goes through, some automobiles appear, some vehicles. But, you know, I'm very careful to make those vehicles look like sort of generic. Are these 1950? Are these 1970? Are these 1990? Mm -hmm. You know, because I just don't want to, I just want the thing to exist outside of time. Interesting, really interesting. My final question is that um, the Polar Express and Jumanji have both been made into popular family films. It's probably unrealistic. Well, I have to add one more too, Zathura. Oh, yes, of course. Yes. Anyway, they've been made into these popular family films. I think it's unrealistic to think that a 32-page book can be adapted into an 80-minute-plus film without some change or additional material. And in Hollywood films, that usually means a regression to some sort of formula and also the inclusion of adults with, who fulfill very different functions in those films to what they do in the picture book for the child. Inevitably, that will to some extent have altered your original vision. It's inevitable. So how do you think the films differ from the books? Well, greatly. Uh... 
But your, your observation that um, regardless of the uh, specific sort of nature of the story, the mood, the sensibility of the story, they get, it, they get put into, the, into a meat grinder and they come out with this formula <laughs> heavily blended in to, to what little uh, you know, particles of the original story were there. You know, they're, they're still there in a way, but uh, I read a, a review of a, of a children's film a, a while back and this reviewer made a very astute observation, which is that there's a remarkable diversity in, in children's books, the messages, the, the intention, the mood, the style, the tone, and yet they all get turned into sort of the same. There's hardly any difference in the films that get made from them. Mm. You know, to me, that's a failure of, of, of adaptation because there's no reason why you can't, with the right artists involved, produce some of the, some of the sensibility that's in the book pages onto the screen. You know, I, I was making this argument that, you know, no one would really want to see a Michael Bay version of Babar. You know, it's some, some action, hiring an action director to do Babar. I'm assuming nobody wants to see that. I may be wrong, but um, I don't want to call myself a victim of that, but certainly that happened a little bit with these. But I think in some ways um, I was lucky because they were all earnest efforts to make film entertainment. They all strove to uh, make something that I don't think was overtly exploitive of the books. They retained some of the elements of it, but as you observed, 16 page well, that covers the text amount. They're 32-page books, but 16 pages of text with big letters. Is, you got to do something to make it into a film. And often authors of, uh, whose books are adapted are just in, in sort of a crisis state because of all the things that are going to have to be removed. And, you know, for a little book like mine, it's all the things that have to be added. And so you just hope that the additions are sensitive to that tiny little thing that they started out with and they sort of reflect its, its values and sensibilities. And so some of it does, some of it doesn't. I could go on if you want. <laughs> no, that's a, that's a really good uh, answer. And sadly, I have to draw it to a close. All too brief, but thank you so much, Chris. Thank you.